We're in, a, we're in a sermon series going through the, the book of Acts together, and uh, we're in Acts chapter 11. So if you, you got a Bible, your version app, whatever that looks like for you, uh, you turn to Acts chapter 11. We are, we're about to read um, one of the most, and I, saw, I said this last week, but, but I mean it this week, that we're in the, one of the most major turning points in the history of the church, in Acts chapter 11. And so... To kind of build up to this, let me just rehash really quickly how the gospel has spread thus far through the book of Acts. We have Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down on the 120 gathered in the upper room. These, these Jewish um, believers, followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's poured out. They speak in other tongues. They, I mean, it, it, this begins the, the birthplace of the church. And then in Acts chapter 8, the gospel spreads to Philip, um, through Philip to the Samaritans, which if you don't know much about Samaritans, they were kind of known as half-Jews. They're half-Gentile, half-Jew. And so uh, this was kind of the beginning of the gospel, getting outside of just the Jewish people. And now it's kind of spreading out into uh, the Samaritans. And then in Acts chapter 10, which we talked about last Sunday, the gospel spreads to God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, what, what's a God-fearing Gentile? Those are people who are non-Jews, but they still uh, profess faith in Yahweh. They still believe in the Old Testament scriptures and, and try to live their life based upon um, the God of the Old Testament as they, as they knew it to be true. And so that was, that was Cornelius and that was kind of, that was last week. What we're about to encounter here in Acts chapter 11, as of yet, has not happened. Um, it had only spread, the gospel had only spread to people who already believed in Old Testament scriptures, people who were God-fearing, whether they were Jews or half-Jews or God-fearing non-Jews, right? Like, it only branched out here. And so, in Acts chapter 11, for the very first time, the gospel is preached to straight-up pagans, people who have no, no background. They're not waiting for a Jewish Messiah. These are people who are probably a lot like most of you. Maybe you grew up with, with very little church background or people that you uh, are neighbors with that, that have never been to church, never, never even maybe heard the gospel before. And um, so we're about to read that, that the very first time where it's spread outside of people who kind of already knew about the God of the Old Testament. Um, why don't you stand with me, Acts chapter 11. We're going to read, verse, uh, start in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. It starts out and says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians, first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. 
the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, and this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Um, we believe that everything that is in your word is in your word for purpose. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we go through this together, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place the same, that your word um, has the very power to change us from the inside out. And so I pray that um, prophetically that, uh, that, that, that your word would get down on the inside of us and that we would be changed and look more and more and more and more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you can be seated, thanks. So I want you to notice that uh, this all starts out with Stephen being martyred in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 7. That's how verse 19 begins. It's kind of reminding us of, of, of Stephen's murder, his martyrdom in Acts chapter 7. You may remember that there was a, a young man named Saul who's also mentioned in this portion of Scripture. Saul was holding the coats of the people who were throwing stones to kill Stephen. As they were disrobing, taking off their outer garments, Saul was the young man who was holding those, and it says that he approved of Stephen's killing. And because of Stephen's killing, the, the, the believers started scattering. People started leaving Jerusalem and going around to different places. And we see this in verse 19. It says this, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So these people were like, were going um, and leaving their home and uh, kind of refugees trying to escape persecution. And I'd like to point this out, that Saul obviously did not know what he was doing when he was holding the coats of those who were murdering Stephen. He didn't know what he was doing at the time, but it's interesting to me, it's so crazy that his persecution of Stephen was actually starting the church that he would one day lead. As, as he's a young man holding and approving of Stephen's martyrdom, he was actually beginning the seeds of planting a church that he would one day. I mean, you can't, you can't write a script better than this, that God will use anything for his glory. Amen? So there's this an account um, of a Romanian pastor. I want to just read this to you. It struck me this week as I was reading it. It says this, during an, an interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, he said this to him, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen to, uh, again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He sent me home. Then, another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that your friend would love to be a martyr, but we're not that foolish to fulfill his wish. He says this in his memoirs. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because um, I wanted badly to live. 
But now I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel. And they were telling me that they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Isn't that powerful? It's this reality that I think in the kingdom of God, like Satan's strategies to stop the church ultimately serve to spread the gospel. We see this in the murder of Stephen, the very first martyr of the, of the Christian church, who knew that a man who was willing to give his life for his savior would plant uh, a church that, that would be one of the largest and most influential churches in the early days. But up until then, the gospel had only been preached to Jews. And they would, even as they would go and travel outside of Jerusalem, they went to you know, Cyprus and different areas, and they, they only preached to the Jews in the synagogues there. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it continues, it says that they spread the word only among Jews. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, this is where it shifts, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them, about the good news of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So, so this is the first time that the gospel was taken to the Greeks. Now, what do I mean by Greeks? These are people who are pagans. These are the Gentiles. These are the, the polytheists. These are the people who are believers in, in myth, mythology, right? Like the Greek mythology, people who did not believe in Jewish scriptures, maybe never even read Jewish scriptures. They certainly weren't waiting for a Jewish Messiah. They, people like maybe that you work with or live with or are friends with that, that don't know the Bible. They've never been to church. They've never heard the gospel. This is, this is the first time that the gospel has spread to people like this. So I want you to understand this. Like when, when they go to Antioch and they start preaching the gospel there, this is not primed for the gospel. This isn't like last week where we talked about Cornelius getting a vision, sending for Peter, come tell me the gospel so that I can be saved. This is not what's happening here. These are people who, who really aren't looking for this Jewish Messiah and the people, the Christians that are going there are preaching. It would have seemed like a dead zone for the gospel. Nobody's asking questions. Nobody's saying, hey, could you tell me how to, how to be saved? Can you tell me more about Jesus? This is a place that you would have thought nobody would have been interested in Jesus. Maybe you, you work in places like this where you're like, <laughs> you don't understand. Like, I, I guarantee, like, nobody at my workplace is asking me, hey, could you tell me more about Jesus? Can you tell me more about, about, about this, this Jesus that you love, that you go to church and that you worship? It would have seemed like a dead zone. Antioch was an unbelievably immoral place. It was famous for their worship of the goddess Daphne, who uh, at the temple there, they, it was known to promote cult prostitution as the major form of worship. So these were like completely immoral people. They're not starting out with at least some Judeo-Christian values or ethics in, this, in their world. They're just literally living um, completely immoral. So it is incredible that a city like this, like Antioch, would be a place where Christianity takes off. May I remind you, there is no such thing as hopeless situations, only situations where people grow hopeless about them. 
So in the midst of this, like, man, you don't even understand. Antioch is not primed. You're not planting churches in Antioch. Nobody's asking about it. The, nobody's, nobody has uh, any sort of like Christian heritage that they're growing up in or any Judaism that they've grown up in. This is not primed for it. And it's in the midst of this, it's this realization that there are, there are no hopeless situations with God. He is the way maker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, miracle worker. Amen? He makes ways where there are no ways. So you can take a look at your hopeless situation. You can make, maybe look at your kids or friends or family members that seem so far away from God. I just want you to understand, you can make grow hopeless in, about that situation, but in God there are no hopeless situations. So no matter how far it looks, how far they're gone, how far they've strayed, I just want you to understand they're just like literally one encounter Jesus and their lives being turned upside down. And it doesn't come through moral living and Judeo-Christian ethics. It comes through encountering Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that changes hearts from the inside out. Amen? And so this is what happens in, in this incredibly immoral place. I mean, cult prostitution, all of these things, then they just start showing up and talking about this Jewish Messiah that you would think, what in the world do I have in common with a Jewish Messiah? Congratulations, have your little bit with your Jewish Messiah. And the Holy Spirit begins to change the hearts of people. You can read it in verse 21. It says this, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So Antioch literally becomes one of the most unlikely and most influential churches around. Antioch. Why? Because when the, when the Lord's hand is with you, he can turn a hopeless situation into a revival. He does. He does it all the time. It's kind of what he does. And it's this realization, and this is where the church begins to change, and, and I think this is where we maybe forget, is that Jesus did not die for the church. He died for the world. He didn't just die for churchy people to do churchy things. He died for those that were lost, that seemed so far, that, that didn't want to have anything to do with him. That's who he died for. Amen? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it... Do you believe this? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first then to the Gentile, everyone who believes. And it's this, this misunderstanding that, that even us today and certainly the early church can fall into where we get this kind of view of like us and them and we, we start to create a disconnect between the church and the world and we get this sneaking suspicion, this sneaking idea that my holiness is dictated by other people's worldliness. Let me just tell you, you can still live a holy life in the midst of, a, of an immoral world. That God came to make the unclean clean, not to be scared that the unclean will make the clean unclean. Jesus came to make the unclean clean. And so when he says to you, church, that you are the light of the world, that means that you can take light into the darkness and that there is no battle. You don't ever battle and say, I got this flashlight, but I'm, I, I, I'm hoping that, that darkness does not overcome this light. When you bring light into darkness, you can expect to see light in the midst of the darkest places. So when he says you are the light of the world, you take literally the light of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into the darkest of places knowing that, that he always overcomes. He always overcomes the darkness. And it's this reality, and I think we're, we're getting it in Acts chapter 11, I hope we, we get it in our own life, and that, that either the gospel is true or it is worthless. Really, truly, 
Either the gospel truly, like, like Paul wrote, has the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes, or there are just some people that are just too far gone and they're, they're on the other spectrum of, the, of, of the, political, the political spectrum than me. I have nothing in common with them and there's not anything that's going to bring them to salvation. Either it's true or it's worthless. Either it has the power to save everyone or it's a religious sham. And I say that to spark something on the inside of us to bring faith, that faith would, would abound, realizing that no matter how dark the darkness is, light always dispels it. Amen? He goes on in verse 22, it says, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. You better bet it reached the church in Jerusalem. They're like, where? There's a revival going on where? Antioch? I got to see this, right? I got, do you realize these, the, the people in Antioch are what? Like, there's not even any Jews in Antioch. How in the world are these people Christians? So immediately it says this, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. He's one of the, the early church leaders. They're like, Barnabas, Barney, you got to go check this place out. Like this I have a hard time believing that there is a revival in Antioch right now. And as soon as I read this scripture this week, this verse 22, I read this, I just couldn't shake this, this one sentence, verse 22. It says, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And I, I thought to myself, there it is again, that, that guy's name, Barnabas. Like he just keeps showing up. He just keeps showing up time and time again. Acts chapter four, Acts chapter eight. He just, his name just keeps showing up. And if you've been tracking with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, you may remember his name coming up. He's kind of always in the background. He, he's always around though. And he's mentioned here and there. And if you were to ask me, who's the most influential leader in the early church, apart from Jesus, you'd probably say Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. The guy wrote half of the New Testament. But I just couldn't shake this guy, Barnabas. So I started going back and I was going through all the times that this guy, Barnabas, is mentioned. And let me just tell you, he didn't live a high-profile life, but his legacy that he left on the church is absolutely undeniable. And I would argue that he is one of, if not the most influential leaders in the early church. Like he never wrote a book. We don't read any of his sermons. He, he, we don't have a, a letter from Barnabas. He never wrote a gospel or anything like that. But I'm just telling you, he, he was a leader of leaders and was one of the most influential leaders in the early church. And he's just mentioned just a few times, peppered in there. Because I, I believe truly, like even as we look at the life of Barnabas, um, he made himself less than he could have been so that others, like Saul, could be more than he would have been. And so the title of my message today is Leading from Behind. And I want to introduce to you this guy um, <laughs> called Barnabas. I think we've done, um, and I say this as a pastor, with a microphone, I think we've done a great disservice to specifically American Christianity in creating a Christian celebrity culture where we have authors and speakers and pastors and musicians behind microphones whose, whose gifts behind microphones are celebrated and even looked at like with fame and popularity. And, and, and those things, those giftings that are off microphone are seen as less than or at least not celebrated in the body of Christ. 
we've kind of created a culture where, where that is very much so um, how we view leadership. Leadership happens with a, with a microphone. And um, well, John Maxwell, he wrote a ton of leadership books. He, he said it like this, leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. So leadership maybe, maybe, maybe looks a whole lot more like prayer warriors, <laughs> intercessors, people behind the scenes, mentors, people that maybe never get the fame and the popularity and the microphone and the book signings, but those are the people that are definitely the backbone of the church. Leadership is influence. And if that's true, then Barnabas was an amazing leader. He, he leveraged and he risked and he applied his influence when nobody else dared to. They were all scaredy cats. And this guy rose to the occasion and it changed the face of the early church. So allow me to introduce to you Barnabas. First off, it's not even his real name. We don't, his, his, the only time that his real name is mentioned is Acts chapter 4, verse 36. It says, Joseph, that's his real name, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means, and catch this, it's his nickname. So they gave him his nickname based upon how he lived. You know, you all kind of get nicknames based upon who you are and what your friends see in you. He was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. So his real name's never mentioned again. Acts chapter 4, if you miss it, you lost it. From that point on, all we get is Barnabas throughout the rest of Acts. He is forever known by his nickname, Son of Encouragement. And what we'll see here as we walk through all these times where this man in the background is mentioned, that he, he literally defines encouragement in the early church. And sometimes we think this. Let me just, let me just bring this around. Um, sometimes we think that when we talk about encouragement that it means like, oh, just say kind words, you know, applause, participation trophies, you know, hand, hand holding, that kind of thing. Just bring encouragement. But it's this word, this Greek word, encouragement, is parakleo, and it can be defined as this to come alongside, to strengthen. That's what encouragement means. To come alongside, to strengthen, which is exactly what we see in the life of Barnabas, son of encouragement. He displays for us what it looks like to lead from behind, what it looks like to, to lead when you're not in charge, what it looks like to be a leader of leaders. So how did he live up to his name? The first thing is this, and I, I don't have any notes for you. I, I didn't get them in, in time. So the first one is this. This man led the way in generosity. He led the way in generosity. Let me show you in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. It says, From time to time, those who owned land or sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The only guy that's mentioned that did this. Honestly, me personally, it's not necessarily here in the Bible. I personally think that Barnabas started the practice of extravagant giving in the early church. He's the only one mentioned. They're like, yeah, from time to time, people would do this, specifically Barnabas. 
Like Barnabas was the guy who, who really probably started this thing. Why? He saw the need. He's like, I got some land that I'm not using. And I mean, I can do that. I, so I, he sold the land and brought the proceeds and, and laid at the apostles' feet to be able to meet the needs of people who were in need. I think he raised the level of generosity in the early church. And he didn't do it by preaching it. He didn't do it by teaching it. He didn't do it by microphone. He did it by doing it. He was a leader who didn't just say, you know what, y'all should do this. Maybe you should all do that. You should do this. If you were a true Christian, you should do it. He just did it, and people noticed. And he gets mentioned in Acts chapter 4 as like, yeah, Joseph did this. Oh, we call him Barnabas now. Why? Because he's the son of encouragement. He always comes along people and strengthens them. He comes along the church and strengthens it. He doesn't just talk about it or preach about it or teach about it. He doesn't say, yeah, that's a really good idea. We should get people to do this. He just does it. And people sit around and take notice, and then he begins this thing where I think other people just started seeing what Barnabas was doing. It's, it's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted the same accolades that Barnabas got when he did it, but they withheld it, and they didn't have the same heart behind it. He just had a heart behind generosity, and he led the way with generosity because I think he knew what many of us find is that we can build a reputation by what we get, but we build a legacy by what we give by what we give. Because a lot of people talk, but few people do. That's what I love about Barnabas. He just starts doing stuff. He doesn't wait around for other people to do it. He does it himself. The second thing is this. Barnabas lived up to his name because he chose to believe the best in people. He chose to believe the best in people. You may remember that um, when Saul came to Jerusalem after being saved for three years and he tries to, he tries to join the disciples and, and you may remember this, like nobody wanted anything to do with him. Everybody's like, oh yeah, Saul of Tarsus? No, he's a Christian? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, let him. Uh, known terrorist into my life group. Yeah, he, uh, he was responsible for killing Stephen. Sure, yeah, welcome him. We'll sing some kumbaya with that dude, right? They're like, no, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And it was only Barnabas that took a risk on him. Just kind of mentioned in there as we, as we read through um, Acts chapter 9. I'll read it to you here. It says this, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. But they were all afraid of him. These are the disciples. They're like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Not believing that he really was a disciple. I think it's a sham. I think it's a trick. I think it's a ruse. Verse 27. But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he vouched for him. Those two words, but Barnabas changed everything for Saul of Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul, the writer of half of our New Testament. Barnabas chose to sponsor Saul even when everybody else was just suspect of him. He literally held the future of Saul of Tarsus in his hands and he chose to take a risk on him and he brought him to the apostles and he believed the best in him. Barnabas, the encourager, comes alongside and strengthens, lived up to his name by believing that Saul was not the sum of his past. That it wasn't just about where he had been, but where he was going. And he takes a risk on this guy. I mean, this is, this is, this is the guy, like this is the leader of leaders that I'm talking about. Third point is this. We see it later on. Barnabas rejoiced at the work of God, no matter who was leading it. Verse 23, we just read in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. It says, when he arrived from Jerusalem to go check out Antioch, 
and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. In your New King James, it says he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He could have arrived and focused on all the things that were going wrong. And let me tell you, I bet there was a ton going wrong. You got this, these people, they got, they got no Judeo-Christian values. These are, these are people, believers in mythology. These are people who were into cult prostitution. These were an incredibly immoral place. And now all of a sudden they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know this was a hot mess. You know there was all kinds of stuff. Like, no, you can't do that anymore. Well, why? Because you, can't, you just can't do that anymore, right? Like, there's all kinds of these things going on. He could have just come in and focused on that. But Barnabas was not looking to dig up dirt. He looked to mine the gold. And so he comes in and he mines the gold out of these people, imperfect people in the church in Antioch. He saw the grace of God in a bunch of imperfect people. And it says that he was glad. It says that he rejoiced. And just like his name, he comes alongside and he strengthens them so that they could be all that they were called to be. Beautiful man, like just absolutely amazing. It says this in verse 23. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. With all of their hearts. So what did he do? He brought them truth in love. It takes the Holy Spirit to to be able to do that well to bring truth in love. Why? Because it's not natural, right? We can bring truth uh, without love and we get dismissed because I, I don't feel like there's any love here. And you can bring love without truth and what does that do? It never changes anyone. Never changes anyone. He brings truth in love and it is the soil for people to grow in God. And this is Barnabas. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let me read, let me read that one more time to you. It says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Does that mean today? If it's today, then it's today. <laughs> Today's today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, which means that a lack of encouragement, a lack of coming alongside to strengthen will lead to hardening our hearts to sin. Could it be that the hardening of hearts to sin in the American church could be a lack of Barnabases who are willing to take a risk and believe the best and yet come alongside in love and truth to strengthen people? Could it just be a lack of discipleship truly viewed in what, what Barnabas did in the life of Saul and many, many, many others. So Barnabas knew that it was always about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's always about the heart. It's always about the heart. And he continues, verse 25. It says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I mean, he's leading this church. He's encouraging them. Good job, guys. We're going to keep going. He's coming alongside them, strengthening them. And then he's like, man, this is too much. He says, and Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. 
The fourth point is this, that Barnabas came alongside potential leaders and pushed them forward. He knew that he needed help. He was like, man, this is, this is a big deal. You know what? I'm going to... I need help. You know, I'm going to go back 100 miles away to Tarsus to go to that promising young man that I took a risk on years earlier. I'm going to go find Saul of Tarsus. And he, he goes personally back to Tarsus to find Saul. When he finally finds him, he's like, look, convinces Saul, you need to come back with me. Why? Because these people in Antioch need someone to be able to teach them, need someone to be able to lead them, need someone to be able to come alongside them and strengthen them. And I want you to understand, he's not just looking for an assistant. He's not looking for an admin. He's not saying, you know what, I got a lot of paperwork. And, you know, Saul, you're pretty good at paperwork, I think. I don't know. I just need you. Could you come here and you just just kind of be my assistant, just do what I need, and, and then, you know, make my life a little bit easier. No, he literally works himself out of a job by leveraging himself for the benefit of others. And so we even see this in, in how they're named. If you look throughout the, the, the book of Acts, all in the beginning of the book of Acts, it's this, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas went to go get Saul. And then Barnabas and Saul went and did this. And Barnabas and Saul spent, you know, a whole year. We just read it, a whole year teaching the people. Barnabas and Saul did this. And then there's this switch. And it happens like in Acts chapter 13. I'm not going to read it for you. You can look at it for yourself later. Acts chapter 13, Saul preaches a message. And all of a sudden, from that point on, from that point on, all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, their names switch. It was Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul preach for an entire year. And then Acts chapter 13, all of a sudden something switches and now they're known as Paul and Barnabas. Now Paul and Barnabas went and they did this. And Paul and Barnabas went and they, Paul and Barnabas left. And, Paul and, Barnabas, and then Paul and Barnabas went and did this. We talk about like this guy being the son of encouragement. Like literally, he, he makes himself less than he could have been so that Saul could be more than he would have been. I mean, just like our, our Savior Jesus, who made himself less so that we could be more than we would have been without him. Amen? What if this guy, who never wrote a book, never wrote a gospel, <laughs> just took a risk on a known murderer named Saul of Tarsus, and saw something in him and chose to mine the gold out of him rather than dig up his dirt and change the face of the early church and change the, what we even read every single week in church. This man who someone took a risk on to say, I see more in you and I'm willing to take a risk on you and to pour into you so that you can be more than you would have been. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? He also did the same thing for John Mark, by the way. We may not even have the gospel of Mark without Barnabas because Barnabas did the same thing. He took a risk on John Mark. Even when Paul, Saul, was like, get rid of this kid. He's a failure. He deserted us. Get him out of here. Barnabas says, now I see something in him, just like I saw something in you, Saul. And I know you can't see it yet because why? We have a really hard time having grace for others when, even when we've received grace for ourselves. And he says, I see that in you. What if, what if we just need more Barnabases in our life or for us to be a Barnabas for other people? Why don't you stand with me? So I just want to leave you with something. Like if, if this is necessary, 
if this guy is truly like a leader of leaders who knew how to lead from behind and was one of the most influential leaders in the early church and yet didn't have a microphone, didn't write a book, didn't author anything that we at least have to read, like, and it is so rare in our day today, what was his secret? How does Barnabas become Barnabas? Verse 24, Acts chapter 11. I think the answer is here. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I think the reason that he was able to minister the way he did was only because he was full of the Holy Spirit. You know what's interesting to me? The word that Jesus uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit. I mean, I just a little, I'm going to geek out on you for a second here. So Acts, John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus is preaching and he, he's talking to his disciples about the, the Holy Spirit that's coming. And he says this, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Which is interesting that he says, like Jesus saying, like, I'm, going to get, I'm, I'm going to send you another advocate. So like, who's the, who is the first advocate then? If you're going to be sending another advocate. Well, the first advocate is obviously Jesus. Like he is like your defense attorney. He is your advocate. And a good advocate doesn't just sit there and hold your hand and, and pet your ego and tell you you're all good. No, a good advocate argues your case in front of the judge. A good advocate stands in your place. And the best advocate, Jesus Christ, actually um, p- pays your debt. And he demands your freedom. And he pleads your case, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is and that what is true of him is true of you. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to send you another advocate. And I, I know it's been really great that like you, you have me as your advocate and I will be pleading your case, but I'm going to send you another advocate. And he says this, to help you and be with you forever. Another advocate. And this word advocate is the Greek word paraclete. Paraclete. You may remember when I was talking about son of encouragement a little bit earlier that the word for encouragement is paracleo. Comes from the same root word. Paraclete, paracleo. Son of encouragement. I'm sending you another advocate. Just as the, your first advocate, Jesus, speaks on your behalf to God, your second advocate, the Holy Spirit, reminds you of what Jesus has done for you. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. The Holy Spirit reminds you of who you are in Christ. He reminds you of your identity. And so what is so amazing to me about Barnabas, son of encouragement, is that he didn't just think that the Holy Spirit came on him so that he could have it for himself and encourage himself. He knew that the Holy Spirit was on him to encourage other people, to encourage others. And so he chose to to mine the gold out of them. He called out their identity in Christ. This is what he did for Saul of Tarsus. He saw something in him that nobody else saw and nobody else was willing willing to risk and he mined the gold out of this man. Church, like we are joined together not by what divides us, but by our identity that supersedes all identities. It does. This is the beauty of what Barnabas does for this man. 
He says, yeah, I know he's been a murderer. Yeah, I know he's done this. I know he's done that. I'm just telling you, I see something more in him. I see now that he is in Christ, I see an identity that supersedes all other identities. Christian, can I remind you that your identity in Christ supersedes your race? Your identity in Christ supersedes your gender. Your, your identity in Christ supersedes your ethnicity. Your identity in Christ supersedes your political views. Your identity in Christ supersedes your opinions. Like your identity in Christ, when you are rooted in your identity in Christ, you can face anything. Why? Because you know who you are. And just like the Holy Spirit reminds you of who you are in Christ, Barnabas comes alongside. I think the greatest thing he does for Saul, the greatest thing he does for John Mark, the greatest thing he did for probably countless other people that never even made it in this book. Why? Because he just lived his life this way as that he came alongside and reminded them continually of who they are in Christ. This is how I see you. Yeah, but I'm not enough. <laughs> you are more than enough in Christ who strengthens you. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a fit. Let me tell you who I see. I see you the way that Christ sees you. What if the disunity in our world is not going to be fixed by more polarity? What if the what if the immorality in our world is not going to be fixed by more judgment? What if we're simply one Barnabas away from changing the world? One person at a time, continually coming alongside and strengthening, not the failures, but strengthening the identity of who we are in Christ and saying, this is who you are, and I'm going to help you to start acting and walking like it. You're worth more than that. You're worth more than that. You're worth more than that. What if what we really need is to be reminded again of who we truly are in Christ, who our identity is in Christ, so that our lesser identities stop screaming for priority? It's the biggest thing in our world right now, identity. It is. Race identity, gender identity, all of these things, all, all of the greatest things that people argue about right now has everything to do with identity because when there is a vacuum something always fills it and when we don't know who we are in Christ we start looking for lesser identities for priority in our life and we forget we forget we forget we forget all too quickly that we are first and foremost a child of the most high king saved blood-bought forgiven that he made himself lesser so that we could be more than we ever would have been and ever could have been. What if we needed more Barnabases to come alongside and remind us who we are in Christ? And what if you're saying, well, I wish I had a Barnabas. I would just want to encourage you, if you want a Barnabas in your life, be a Barnabas for somebody else. Choose to just be like Barnabas. I'm going to lead the way in generosity. I'm going to lead the way in encouragement. I'm going to, I, I, I wish other people would do this for me, but I'm going to lead the way in doing this so that other people can say, man, there's something different about this guy that I want to be more like. I just want to encourage you to, to lead from behind. Lead from behind. Let me pray this over you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul wrote, 
in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, catch this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Church, I said this before and I'll say it again. Either the gospel is true or it's worthless. And I am confident, just like Paul, that as we remain true to the Lord with all of our hearts, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And it doesn't matter where you find yourself today. Maybe, you, maybe you've kind of been like, you just don't understand. Like, I've been praying about this. I've been hoping for this. I've been hoping against all hope and nothing's changed. I just want you to remind you that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. The identity that you received in Christ as you walk this thing out, as you remain true with all of your hearts, he'll see it to completion. So Jesus, I pray for each and every single one of us in here today that are just struggling with identity. Really. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do. I mean, struggling with gender. I'm struggling with with these lesser identities. Lord, I pray that your identity would reign supreme over us. And just like Barnabas, that we would come alongside and strengthen that which remains and strengthen the identity of you. That what is true of you is true of us if we are in you. And so Lord, we lift you up today. May we worship you, realizing, man, we are not enough. (laughs) But you are. I thank you, God, for that you, you, you bought us with your blood and that you consider us worthy even though we really know we're not. Lord, we thank you for loving us when we're unlovable. Help us to love others when they're unlovable. We lift you up. Let's worship him together, church.